Good morning. This morning I will present the last of four sermons on Redeemer's mission. The mission of our church should be based on the Bible's mission for the church. If the mission of our church is biblical, it will transcend the times. If the message of Scripture is timeless, and we believe it is, and the commission of Jesus is timeless, which we know it is, then our mission should comport very closely with these. If the mission of the church is biblical, it will not be thwarted by the trials that we encounter or the circumstances like the one we find ourselves in. Our mission is to mature as a community of Christians who love to worship their God, study his word, and proclaim his gospel to the world. There are four features that we have been walking through together in this sermon series. First was worship. Second, the Bible. Third, community. And today, the proclamation of the gospel. These are the four, you might say, pillars or key features of our mission as a church. One of the foundational passages for our church's mission is rightly the Great Commission from Jesus himself. So I will begin by reading Matthew 28, verse 19 and verse 20, but I will refer you to several passages, so you want to pay close attention, you'll be able to see them on your screen, and you also should have an outline at your disposal. So hear now God's holy word. This is Matthew 28, 19 and 20. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Let's bow together and pray. Heavenly Father, all things from your hand are good. Even the challenging situation that we find ourselves in as a society and as a church. Oh Lord, we know that you are not limited by the medium in which your word is communicated. So we ask for the ministry of your Holy Spirit to be at work to open our eyes to the truth of your word. As we consider your call for the proclamation of the gospel, please compel us by your word and motivate us to action as individuals and as a church. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. I'm figuring most of you have probably tuned in a few times this week to the Presidential Coronavirus Task Force reports. And one thing on the level of communication that I have appreciated is every time the vice president gets up, the first thing he does, and you'll know this, he holds up this sheet. And everyone probably recognizes this because five out of six days he's held this sheet up to remind everyone of the president's 15 days to slow the spread. And he goes through some of the bullet points. This is a great picture of using reinforcement and repetition to remind us of what's so important, at least a message he wants us to have. The purpose of this mission series is to reinforce and repeat who we are as a church, to be reminded of what God has called us to, that we are to be maturing as Christians and as a community of Christians in particular who love to worship their God and study his word and also proclaim his gospel to the world. It's on the bulletin every week. It's on many of the handouts we have. It's on our website. It's repetition and reinforcement so that every member is more focused and more fruitful in carrying out this mission the Lord has given us. Today our focus is proclaiming his gospel to the world. 
proclaiming the gospel to the world is woven into the great commission that Jesus gives us in the opening line of Matthew 28, 19. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. We know that discipleship or following Christ begins with believing in Christ and his work on our behalf. So our church should be a training ground for disciples. That means a proclamation of the gospel on a regular basis, woven in everything we do, and then training people to learn the fullness of what that gospel means and how it applies to everything. Even how we look at the scriptures to understand the undergirding of God's grace and redemption that comes from every passage of the word of God. So training starts with a clear presentation of the gospel and a strong commitment to proclaiming the gospel far and wide. What does the proclamation of the gospel include? And you'll see on your outline how this is laid out. These are all biblical principles taken together to enforce in our minds what it means to proclaim the gospel. First of all, we know we have a message to proclaim, a specific message to be communicated. Secondly, there's a mindset about the proclamation of this message we have to have. How does it work, you might say? Um, How does the Lord make it effective? How we think about this biblically will go a long way to our faithfulness in proclaiming it. And we can see from Scripture there is also a method that is laid out for proclaiming the gospel. So we have a message, we need to have a certain mindset, and we have to follow a certain method. All of these are laid out for us in the Scriptures. I'll refer to several passages First, we have a message to proclaim. In other words, what is the gospel? Hardly can we imagine a more important question. Well, first of all, the gospel is good news. That's what the word itself means. It appears over 90 times in the New Testament. It literally means good news. Now, you know and I know that good news only appears against the backdrop of a bad situation. It's good news because of what's bad. The bad news is our sin problem and the curse of sin on all creation, not just mankind. The entrance of sin into the world is in Genesis chapter 2, and it forms us about how things really are. Things are broken and askew because of sin, even death because of sin. We are broken and askew because of sin. We are conceived in iniquity. Part of our confession of sin from the book of Psalms says out loud that we were conceived in iniquity. You know, one of Paul's great contributions to Scripture by the power of the Holy Spirit is painting a very clear picture of the gospel. In so doing, he is most descriptive when he describes the bad news. In Ephesians chapter 2, you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Paul, straight up in the book of Ephesians, lays out that we are dead in our trespasses and sins. Because of our sins and trespasses, because of who we are as people under the fall, we are dead. We're not sick. We're not ailing. We are dead. Our condition apart from God is one of spiritual deadness. We have no spiritual eyes apart from God's intervention to give us sight. We are irresponsive to God's voice in our sinful condition. You know, when a person is declared dead, they cannot revive themselves. I've been there when a person has been declared dead. The doctors have done everything. 
The person's systems have shut down. There's no circulation. There's no respirations. There's no pulsating. There's no nerve transmissions. Dead. That person cannot resuscitate himself. There must be an outside force that gives that person life again. Someone outside of that person has to be the one to give new life. We are all declared dead in our trespasses and sins. That is our condition. That's the bad news. But the good news is that God has acted, has intervened to give us that spiritual life. In Ephesians 2, starting at verse 4, But God, in light of the bad news, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. You see the good news that God has acted to save us through Christ. He has done this. Only he could do this. We could not do this for ourselves. The good news is that God has raised us from our dead spiritual state by the work of Christ. He's made us alive together with Jesus. And please note, this word grace is important. We use it with each other. So-and-so is very gracious. And usually we mean that they're kind. Or maybe we receive something from someone else that's not deserved, and we call that gracious. That's true. You can use that word with human beings. But when we're talking about God and we say that God is gracious or shown us grace, there's another level there. Because it's not only that we didn't deserve what he gives us in Christ, it's that we actually deserved his wrath and justice. So in the place, or even with the demerit we have, with the the sins counted against us, that we deserve his justice, he still shows us kindness because of Christ intervening for us. Um, This is what grace, the grace of God is. It's much better than the grace of any person. And this is what we have on display in the gospel. I mean, that's the essence and heart of the gospel, is God showing us grace because of the finished work of Christ, the satisfying work of Christ that paid for our sins. So God's justice is not done harm to because Christ has paid for it. This is the good news. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ by grace you have been saved. Now, how do we know that we have this new life that God grants through Christ? By the gift of faith. Now think about this. How do you know you're a Christian? That's an important, people ask that question often. Well, John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him, Christ, should not perish, but have eternal life. So when read biblically, belief in Christ expressing belief in Christ, that's proof, that's proof that you've been born again. Now, it's not like this, that I believe and then I'm born again. No, God, remember, we're dead. So God has to born us again. How do we know we're born again? We believe. We trust in Christ. We rest in Christ. The gospel is simply this. This is our message. Believe on the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Now, there's lots there, but that's the simplicity of it. Believe on the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. In particular, when I say the Lord Jesus, I mean him and his finished work on your behalf. That finished work is because of our sin, and we know that. So we're expressing that we're sinners in need of a Savior, Jesus. That's the gospel. Believe on the Lord Jesus, 
and his finished work for the forgiveness of your sins. If you ever wonder, am I really a Christian? Am I really saved? Do you lack assurance? Do you believe you're a sinner and that Jesus died for your sins? Then you are saved. If you can sing with Horatio Spafford, who wrote, It is well with my soul. If you can sing with him and mean it, that Christ has regarded my helpless estate and hath shed his own blood for my soul, then you're a believer. If you believe that, if you grab hold of that and know that's true, that's how you can be assured. Because you would not believe if Jesus had not saved you. This is the message that we are called to proclaim. This is the message we're called to herald. And keep this in mind. This message and its intent is not just meant for our personal salvation from hell. The proclaiming of this message, as I've said it, is ultimately for the great glory of God. Because all of the glory will be his. Ephesians 1, 11 and 12. In him we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Now look at verse 12. So that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. Paul addressing this first generation of believers, and this of course extends to us, that we would be able to profess our hope in Christ. For what reason? to the praise of his glory. Our salvation is meant to be to the praise of God's glory. We are redeemed so that we can give the credit where it's due to point to him. We're not the only ones affected by sin and death, as a matter of fact. So is the whole of creation. And ultimately, when all of God's elect are called to salvation, whenever that may be, is when the Lord will restore all things unto himself. In Romans 8, verse 19. For the creation waits with eager longing for what? For the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. The ultimate aim for proclaiming the gospel is the redemption of all things for the glory of God. Very simply, Regarding the message we are called to proclaim, very simply, Jesus is the gospel. Jesus is the gospel. Paul, writing to the Corinthian church, is reminding them of what he taught while he was in ministry there. He summarizes his ministry when writing to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and in other places. What was the essence of Paul's message? 1 Corinthians 15, 1 and 2. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand. So what is this gospel? Verse 2. And by which you are being saved, this gospel. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. The gospel, this gospel that I preached to you. He's bringing them back to this essential point. And then in verse 3 and verse 4. For I deliver to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures that he was buried, and he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Jesus Christ is the gospel. Jesus Christ and his finished work, completely embodied in these two verses, 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4. Believe on Christ. You know, as a diagnostic question, I used to ask people to see if they were believers and where they were in their walk with the Lord. I would ask them questions that I later 
realize we're just too nebulous. That, you know, when did you become a Christian? Or how do you cultivate your Christian walk? Or um, when did you trust Christ first? Uh, but a few years back when we used to interview members using that kind of lingo, which was my fault, I was kind of leading that way, it would confuse people sometimes because they weren't at knowing what I was exactly asking. One of our elders said, you know, we should just ask people straight up, who is Jesus Christ to you? And that's been one of the greatest pieces of advice. And I use it in my own personal interactions with people, interviewing new members, teachers at HCA, whoever I want to know um, the content of their faith, who they're trusting, and how they know they're right with God. I say, who is Jesus Christ to you? In the simple answer, it's not a real deep one. It is a deep one, but it's not many words. Jesus is my Lord and Savior. Boom, that's it. You've got the gospel. Because by saying he's your Lord and Savior, Savior means saved from sin, and you know Jesus can save you and you trust in him. This is the message we are called to proclaim. But I want you to see something from Scripture that I think will help us be more bold and confident in proclaiming. And that's the second point. That there's a certain mindset about this good news that we preach. A certain mindset about the preaching of the good news or the proclaiming of the good news. And that mindset has to do with how God does the work of salvation. I've already alluded to it a bit in just describing the message itself. But now I want us to see it on a deeper level. First of all, the mindset that God is totally sovereign over who saved, that's an important base for our confidence to proclaim the message. If we look again at Ephesians chapter 1, you'll see the sovereignty of God, the all-powerfulness of God, the total control of God in salvation. Ephesians 3, or excuse me, 1, 3 through 5. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. It's been well noted that the whole first chapter of Ephesians never mentions anything that we have to do with it. It's all about what God has done through Christ. This is the sovereignty of God in salvation. The gospel message is the message of what God has done in salvation. We are called to believe on it. But now we're getting behind it a little bit. We're recognizing it's God through and through that brings this salvation through Christ. The work of salvation is completely God's work. So it also means all the glory for salvation goes to God. Not any of it's shared. This understanding creates a mindset that is humble and grateful that he would include us. We know it's not because he looked ahead and saw how good we would be and then chose us. None of that is, is in the text. It's all about God out of his great grace, according to the good pleasure of his own will, reached out to save a people for himself. And we're left with wondering, why us? Why, how could God be so good to us? We don't deserve this. And we're humbled when we recognize this great sovereignty of God. It's up to God's good pleasure to whom he gives us salvation. We have only to be grateful and humble before him. In Romans chapter 9, 15 through 18, it's a great expose on the sovereignty of God. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has, who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. Our mindset about proclaiming the gospel has to be humble. 
Our mindset has to be reliant upon the sovereign power of God. Our mindset should be one of gratefulness to God for showing any of us mercy in Christ. You know, it's often been said that sharing Christ with others is simply one beggar showing another beggar where they can find a crust of bread. I think that demonstrates well the humility that we find ourselves in as recipients of salvation and how we would want others to see and know this salvation as well. While God is most certainly sovereign in salvation, he has instructed us to proclaim the gospel message. He is sovereign over the message and the work of the gospel, the work of salvation, and he's, over, he's also sovereign over the means that he uses to bring people to himself, and he chooses to use the preaching of the gospel for this purpose. We know this because there are several passages in Scripture right in close proximity to these other passages that tell us to preach the gospel. That's how God will work his salvation. In Romans chapter 10, just a chapter after this great chapter on the sovereignty of God, Romans 9, we read in Romans 10, starting at verse 13, For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Now we know the backstory a bit, but this is the, the truth of it. Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. But how are they to call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? Verse 15 of Romans 10. And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach good news. A great prophecy from the book of Isaiah, quoted here by Paul. Romans ten sixteen. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. God is giving us a bit of an insight in how he applies the work of salvation by having the message preached. And so we're called to proclaim it fully confident in the sovereignty of God when we preach this message. God has ordained that his salvation will be applied by the means of preaching the gospel. Jesus said, as recorded by Mark in Mark 16, go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. It doesn't tell us to worry or fret or be anxious about the response. It simply tells us to preach this message of the gospel because the sovereign God will do his sovereign work and he has ordained that it be done through the preaching of the gospel. Now, you might wonder, well, how do these two go together, the sovereignty of God and salvation and the responsibility we have to offer the gospel, to preach the gospel, to proclaim the gospel? Well, one great example in Scripture comes from Acts chapter 13. It shows how they work together. There is the, the preaching ministry of the apostles going on in Acts 13, and follow starting at verse 47. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. So preaching's going on. The gospel's being preached. Then Acts thirteen forty eight, And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. So they're responding to the gospel. We see that or recognize it outwardly. That's what Acts is doing. It's describing what was happening. So they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life, believed. That's how they go together. God's sovereign over who responds, but we are called to preach it, and then people will hear it, and those who are appointed 
to eternal life will believe. That's up to the Lord. That's up to God. He's sovereign enough to do all of the rest. He can handle response too. This is the Lord's. In verse 49 of Acts 13, and I, I, say, I really emphasize verse 49 to give us all encouragement that the simple message I'm talking about here, that the scripture's laying out, is powerful. It's the message that saves. In verse 49, and the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. What were they preaching? They were preaching Christ and him crucified. They weren't preaching the answers to all life's problems, all society's problems, all the many things we can think of or address, that the Bible may say things about, but the message of the gospel was very clear, and as many as, as were appointed believed, and this message was spreading. That's how growth happens, uh, is through the preaching of the pure gospel. Well, there's also a method, and I just started to allude to it. We have a mindset, or we have a message that's clear, a certain mindset about God's sovereignty and our responsibility to proclaim freely this message of the gospel. But there's also methodology that's laid out, or at least exemplified in Scripture. Um, We see a, a clear way in which the gospel should be proclaimed. Now, the first two points will help us with this point. If we know the message clearly, and we have a mindset about God as the one who does the work, we will not be tempted to try to help out the gospel preaching. Uh, the gospel preaching doesn't need our help. God does not need our help. So he gives us very, very, very clear methodology, or at least practices that have to always be held to for us to be faithful in proclaiming this message that is said in Acts 13, the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. Number one, there has to be clear gospel preaching. That goes back to the first point. What is the message? It has to be clear, has to be resounding, has to be regular, has to be repeated, has to be reinforced. The most important method for the proclamation of the gospel, it seems painstakingly obvious, but there must at base level be clear gospel preaching. There must be at the center of the activities of the church clear gospel preaching and understanding. How do we know if this is happening in the church? I would say that every member of the church, if we stopped you at 3 a.m. and asked you, who is Jesus Christ to you? What is the gospel? All of us should be able to say. And if you can't, that's not your fault. That's my fault. That's the elder's fault. Now, you know if you haven't been listening, or if you're not born again, I hope you become born again, but recognize that this should be something that the leadership of the church is doggish about making sure we know. That repetition, I hold up this every time and you say, I know what he's going to say. Praise God. And you should be able to repeat what I'm going to say as it relates to the message. So clear gospel preaching is the number one feature of this proclaiming the gospel to the world. It has to be understood internally inside the church before we can bring this message beyond these walls. 1 Corinthians chapter One, once again, a beautiful passage that describes what I've just been saying. 1 Corinthians 1.20. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For the Jews demand signs and the Greeks seek wisdom. But what do we do? We preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. 
So clear gospel preaching, despite people saying that's a crazy message. I can't believe you all think this. That's not wise. That's way too primitive. We'll get that response. That's always been it historically. Don't let that fool us into thinking we're not preaching the right message. In fact, expect that. Because for those who are made wise into salvation, it's the power of God. And they never get sick hearing it. They always love to hear it afresh, how they're made right with God. By the way, I've been alluding to the proclamation of the gospel message itself when I talk about clear gospel preaching, and that's true. That should be clear in every service and even our interactions. But there's another level to it. It's a whole other subject, but I want to mention it. I'm not just talking, when I say clear gospel preaching, about explanations of the gospel itself but also proper gospel focus on all preaching. Proper gospel focus on every passage of Scripture. The underlying message of the Bible is Jesus Christ. So here I'm talking about all the preaching has to be clearly pointed to Christ. Now that's a challenge when you're reading through Leviticus, or you have a passage that doesn't seem directly related to Jesus, realize it is related to Jesus. It's part of the whole of God's redemption work. And the preacher and the teacher has to know how to plug it back in and show where this fits in that timeline. It has specific application for sure. Lots of times, though, it's focusing, again, pointing you to Christ, uh, reminding you of this work of God in his plan of redemption to point us to Jesus. So the totality of the teaching and preaching of the church, even when we're going through individual books, will focus on the details, but then step away and remind us of its gospel application. And all of Scripture has this. Such a Christ-centered, gospel-focused approach to Scripture, it guards us against moralism by pulling out a passage and saying do's and don'ts without any understanding of what that, how that relates to Jesus and his finished work. We have to ask that question. That's the right question to ask as we work through Scripture. So gospel clarity in preaching doesn't just mean explaining the gospel. It means understanding the whole of the Bible in light of the redemption given to us through Christ. Of course, there are commands and morals. These are seen through the redemption of Jesus, not as a way of coming to know Jesus or being right with Jesus, but a way as born-again people with the Holy Spirit to live out our new life in Christ. Huge difference. Redemption context, Jesus context, is so important to understanding the Scriptures aright. Now, you could see why this is a whole other topic, but clear gospel preaching does include this as well. There's something else that's very important in our methodology. I've mentioned the most important one. That's the, the mantle of the pulpit, mantle of the church's teaching. But this then is meant to reverberate through the pews so that each individual believer lives out their ambassadorship, representatives of Jesus out in the world, wherever God takes you. So I don't suggest that every believer has to take the mantle of preacher in the same sense that I'm talking about. But every believer represents Jesus where they are. And um, by your actions, you demonstrate that you have a different master than the world. And hopefully, by God's grace, you have opportunity to share the words, the message of the gospel that you should know so clearly. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 20 and verse 21. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us, 
we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Now, markedly, this is an apostle speaking to the church. Some might say, well, that's not for every member of the church. Well, there's lots of passages where it seems very obvious the apostles are walking in a way that exemplifies something. And there are other things they do that are just for the apostles. Here, this is just the personal reconciliation people have, have experienced through Jesus. And they're saying, we want to tell you about this. We were reconciled. We want you to be reconciled. Be ministers of reconciliation for that matter. That's what it means to be an ambassador for Christ. If you've been reconciled, a natural reflex is to tell other people. So again, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin. So then in him, we might become the righteousness of God. What a message, the gospel message. Now go tell people this. And you're going to have opportunities in your life, especially in this particular epoch in which we're living. People will be scared. People will wonder. People are, are doing whatever they can to hang on to this life that cannot be hung on to for that long. And you will have opportunity on an individual basis, especially when the church can't be together like it usually is. You'll have opportunities to reach out to people and give them a reason for the hope you have in eternity, life and eternity. We all will have opportunities to personally witness, personally share about the gospel that we have come to believe because of God's grace. You know, when you think about that in the life of the church, there are many activities. In fact, all the activities of the church in some way support this. Um, Think of our local witness. I mentioned the pulpit ministry, but also all the discipleship ministries of the church where the teaching of the Bible happens and we interact about how it applies in our life and how it bears witness to Christ. Think of the youth ministry in the church. Uh, our Christian school has the same purpose ultimately underlying. Um, our Sunday school programs, our Bible studies, the programs we have are not just space fillers or things to be busy about. They are meant to build us stronger in the scriptures, stronger in the gospel, bolder in our explanation of it, so when opportunities arise, we can share those. And this is just on a local level. We participate in various ministries, whether it be the food pantry to reach out to show the hands and feet of Christ with the hope that we can share the message of the gospel. It could be advice and aid, Good Samaritan. We have people doing all sorts of local ministry as ambassadors. How we interact in a time of crisis like this will also bear certain witness to people who are watching. I suspect that all of you have had opportunities this week, probably unlike other opportunities you've had before, to bear witness to Christ. Of course, we want to engage in cross-cultural ministries, help with missionary efforts wherever they are in the world, and that's what we try to partner in, both by going, by praying for these ministries, by supporting them financially, All of this is with a hope, a desire to see a clear message of the gospel shared with all these places they were partners with. We have a clear message. Believe on the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. We are to have a certain mindset. God is sovereign in salvation and he calls us to proclaim that message. And we've been given a method to proclaim the gospel through the public preaching and teaching of the gospel, of the word, and through our personal witness as individual Christians placed in the world to interact with others. You know what's coming. Our mission is to mature as a community of Christians who love to worship their God, study his word, and proclaim his gospel to the world. The four features that we have gone over, worship, the Bible, community, and proclamation. Let us pray. 
Father, we give you praise for the timeless message of the gospel and for a commission that transcends times and events. Please strengthen Redeemer in the mission that you have called us to. Please encourage and embolden every member of the church to be faithful ambassadors, ambassadors for the gospel of Jesus, ambassadors for Jesus himself. Lord, in these times of worry and even fear, grant to every member of Redeemer courage and excitement about the opportunities that we have. Lord, I know personally, I pray that you would grow my faith. And then when you give me an opportunity to grow my faith, I grumble a little bit. But Lord, help us not to grumble, but rather to grow spiritually strong in this time. Please exalt yourself through these very interesting days. I pray this in the name of Christ and for your glory. Amen. Let's respond to the preaching of the word by turning to 164. We'll stand if you'd like and sing, Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing. <laughs> 